welcome to another episode of Beside the Author with me, Renika, your host and narrator. I deep dive into the books alongside the actual author in an in-depth study so you as current or future readers can get a deeper understanding of the author's intended message. season we are examining a book called The Hidden Tree by Valton Brown. The Hidden Tree is a book that examines societal philosophies, ideas and inventions to expose and discuss the historical out-of-sight root system that is fueling the largest global transition since the Industrial Revolution. A round of applause please for Valton Brown. Hello Valton. Hello again Renika. That is okay. So last time Last episode, we discussed chapter five, the hidden tree. <laughs> we discussed the logo of eugenics, how Apostle Paul also addressed philosophers of the time in a similar way to how you're addressing the characters in this book. And we then finished off the episode by challenging ourselves to kind of go through all the previous chapters to date and try and remember. think we did quite a good job on that (laughs) and it has been a few weeks since we released a new episode so we're here today to do that and we are going to be looking at chapter six the materials or if you look at the book it's kind of like a part two to the hidden tree so Valton as always over to you to do a overview of this section for any readers that haven't read this bit or listeners who are just intrigued to know yeah, so we looked at the symbol of the tree, but now we're going to focus on the root system. I call this the materials. In other words, the uh, materials that help to feed the tree, that help it to grow, uh, the sort of things that it draws from in our society, in our experience as human beings. So uh, we're looking really at some of those elements. We can't cover them all. And of course, within the root system, of this uh, symbol of the tree, it has grown and continues to grow. So there are many, many other elements that we've not touched. This is just an introduction into how to view the materials in this part of the book. Nice. So let's list some of the materials. We have mental testing, Mm -hmm. genetics, politics, education, psychology, just to name a few. And in the book as well, you pull out a few of the key ones and not all of the ones that are currently listed at the bottom of the tree on the logo and similar to how we did the evangelist episode we will pull out just a few of those materials as time is of the essence and i've split those materials into two themes so we have redefining the human experience and introducing the eugenic impact on society so let's start with theme one redefining the human experience so, Valton, in the beginning of the materials, mm. you focus on the materials psychology and psychiatry. Why did you open this chapter with these two materials? It could have been any, but I uh, felt that these two subjects, or one subject really, with two words to define it, they would factor later in the book. And they're also foundational to the thinking behind what the narrative of of this book is about. So it was important to really hone in on this. And of course, in today's society, psychology, psychiatry, 
is a very, very popular area of study. Much of what we experience stems out of that, but it does have quite an interesting yet insidious beginning and influence. Yeah, because you go into some of the history behind psychology, how it starts quite philosophical, and then they try to bring it into a scientific realm Mm. with like William Wundt, I believe. So how you've written about psychology in the beginning of this chapter, in some ways you could say is slightly controversial. I want to ask you, how would you describe your stance on these topics around psychology and psychiatry? I try my best to be objective. In other words, when I looked at some of the individuals that were claiming to be, say, the father of psychology, and you've just mentioned one of those influences, when you're looking at the material behind these individuals and the conversations around them, and also the context within which they were putting out their ideas, you discover very quickly that it's not actually rooted in anything that's scientific at all. It's a theory. It's based on theories, based on their ideas. And well, any one of us can do that. But because of the way it's been presented and because of how the people around that time needed something like this to rubber stamp their own particular belief systems, specifically eugenics, then of course, it starts to gain some kind of legitimacy. So I tried to let the information speak for itself rather than me putting my opinion into it. But of course, as you say, it still comes across as quite a controversial perspective. Yeah, definitely. Because as you mentioned at the beginning, that psychology now is very much almost part of every single day from when you go to your workplace or if you're just sat watching YouTube, you know, the different information that comes up. That's why I just Mm. wanted to hone in on your thoughts around that topic. So let's put a pause on that because I will come back to your stance later on. In this chapter as well, under that section, you bring in two characters who are using psychology to propagate racism. So in previous chapters, we've seen you discuss about slavery, how that's part of like the birthplace in some way of being able to cultivate the seed of eugenics. Mm. And you bring out these two characters called Samuel A. Cartwright, who theorized that black slaves suffered from drapetomania, which was an impulse or need to run away, and only whipping them would stop them from running away. Paraphrasing. And Benjamin Rush, who was regarded as a founding father of American psychiatry and many other significant titles, presented being black as a disease and was curable through bleeding, etc., to lessen the black colour. So you can read this on pages 94 to 96 where you go into more detail. The question I want to ask you was, what was your reason for presenting the connection between race and psychology in this chapter? It it wasn't a deliberate choice. Okay. It was purely because I was looking at these individuals under the heading of psychology stroke psychiatry and reading their position on some of their thoughts around the human experience. Of course, race was an obvious one at the time, so it just naturally came into the words of the book. So what I very quickly discovered was that when I took out, say, the paragraphs that you've just mentioned, it just read like something from a comedy show to me, although it's it's quite serious. So it wasn't a deliberate choice to go for race. It's just because it was part of their 
theory. It was part of their thought process. But also it was important to place this in the book so that people can read it for themselves and make their own decisions about whether these people were scientists or if it was purely something else, you know, was it speculation? And I think just from those two paragraphs, it's quite clear that that was nothing to do with science at all. It was their position based on what was happening around slavery and, and other things. And as we said in, in um, earlier programs, the soil defined the language, the soil of slavery defined the language that was going to be used through eugenics, but eugenics again would become part of a uh, philosophy or would be the philosophy through which these ideas would begin to be propagated and people would begin to take them on as being truth. And, and of course, over time, that starts to morph into something quite mysterious. And if you're a Christian reading this, you might look at it and think, I don't want to read about race, but it's important to stay with this part of the book because it gives you the language for what will come next. Very interesting. Yeah, because when I was reading it, I saw that theme and I was like, that's mm. quite an interesting use of psychology. And it doesn't lessen as you go through no. the pages of the book. Mm. It seems to be almost a very parallel twinned yeah. um, two subjects. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you would think as well that because it's psychology, that it would be about the human experience. Why did they choose colour as, as an issue? And that word dreptomania, I, fa I thought that was hilarious when I read it because... Uh, of course, my parents being from Jamaica and uh, myself as a person reading it in the 21st century, I'm thinking, did he really think that was a really plausible idea that the colour was some kind of a, an issue in, in one hand, but also that people ran away as slaves because they had some kind of a medical condition? That, that's just crazy rather than looking at the actual experience they were yeah. going through. And it says something yeah. about psychiatry and psychology itself. It just begins to sow those seeds. So you can almost expect what's going to come next when you see how it's applied. Okay, so you also then, under that uh, theme of psychology and psychiatry, you go into some of the methods they use, so under the title of psychotherapy. Mm. And from reading different sources, psychotherapy is a form of talking therapy. However, under it are different techniques. And in your book, you list a few original psychotherapy methods, which some psychologists now argue are debunked as false. Mm -hmm. However, some listed in your book are still present and we see are being used. What was your intention in including psychotherapy under the materials section? Well, if this is all part and parcel of treating the issues that we have as human beings without God in the picture, I wanted to know what sort of techniques were they using under the heading of psychotherapy? What was it? What were they? And as you said, it's, some of those approaches have been debunked now. But put that aside, people were saying, this is truth. If you apply these techniques, if you allow us as professionals, as experts, to treat you using these techniques, we will help you to get through your emotional problems or whatever it is that you may be suffering with. The fact that we've debunked some of those now tells you that these were not ideas based on a datum that you could say was truth because truth will always be around regardless of what's going on around it. 
and regardless of what we think about truth philosophically. So psychotherapy, when you looked at the methods they were using, it spoke to me like just another extension of a religion, and that was interesting. So I began delving a little bit into some of the techniques, and of course, then I discovered that, yeah, it had very much sort of uh, spiritual roots, which tells you the origin that it's coming from. Let's read a few of the examples that you pulled out as some of the techniques under psychotherapy. I just want to quickly find the page that it's on so anyone can refer back. So it's page 97 to pages 102. So let's pull out what you've put here. So phrenology was one of them. You say the term phrenology is derived from ancient Greek for mind and knowledge. This approach believes that it is possible to determine the individual's character, intellectual capacity and brain function by studying the school's shape, size and bumps. Somehow it was thought that the school provided viable information which could be read and interpreted by the initiated. Franz Joseph Gall created this system of measurement in the early 1790s in Vienna, which later became a popular approach to proceed important life choices. You bring out another technique called mesmerism. Another description for mesmerism is animal magnetism sound familiar. The German doctor Franz Anton Mesmer was the originator of the term mesmerism. He practiced in Austria and developed the idea that every living or animate object had an invisible yet universal fluid or energy running through it. I'll skip through that down near to the end. And you then say the idea and the practice of the mesmerist or magnetizer, as they were called, is similar to, if not the same as Reiki, kinesiology, energy healing and chakra balancing. And just one last one, mental healing slash positive visualization. You say these are ideas that are rooted in mesmerism and owe their prominence to a man called Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. It is suggested that Quimby came to embrace mesmerism following his own experience of illness and after listening to a lecture on mesmerism by Charles Poyen Saint-Sauveur, hopefully I'm saying that right, a French disciple of Franz Anton Mesmer. And this part of mental healing and positive visualisation, you're then later on saying that it's infiltrated Christian circles for many years. I think from just reading those, and hopefully the Mm. listeners might come to a similar question to me, Mm. but it was, I was very struck at how spiritual these methods were. Exactly, exactly the point. And it led to a question from a biblical stance, which is, is there a tension between the biblical faith and these therapeutic methods? I think when you read that paragraph and some of the other elements in the book, the conclusion to that has to be uh, there is a tension between. As a matter of fact, they're complete opposites. Uh, Phineas Quimby, his approach to uh, spirituality was called um, was called New Thought. So he was basically a New Ager. But what he taught has become part of the church experience in many ways. So if you hear someone um, making reference to the fact that when you speak the word over and over and over again, it will create what you're saying it should create. So that's positive thinking. Positive thinking is not a biblical concept. Faith is. The other things to do with hypnotism, Reiki, all of these elements, they're drawn from the occult. And unfortunately, throughout our interviews, that word occult may come up over and over again because the root system is a it's demonic philosophy, basically. 
you can see that when you read what they say it is. So animal magnetism is nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Uh, some of the other elements, uh, Reiki, which uses the, the energy or tries to repair the energy over an individual, such as chakra uh, balancing and some of these other things, they're all New Age philosophies. What's New Age? Well, again, when you read some of the other elements, you find out that there's a Eastern influence merging with Western influence and put it all together, you get what you read in the book. So it's nothing to do with objective thinking. It's not to do with a biblical approach to healing, for example. And there are many other subjects that come out of that. So, you know, you get the Ag Agnes Sanford, who, who's a big leader in the inner healing movement, who isn't mentioned in that part of the book. But how many believers have bought books on inner healing and believe that, well, if we apply this, we'll be set free and breaking generational curses and those sort of things. It's important to know where they come from and it doesn't come from the Bible. And I think as well, because all the things that are going on around mental health now, and I know you have a particular thought process on that, mm. let me just pause and let you give your take on that. So again, this may not be the popular position, but uh, there was a chap called Thomas Saz. He wasn't a believer, but he spoke quite clearly about the issue of mental health. And interestingly, before I had this book published, I was in the process of producing the manuscript, and um, I was thinking about all the experiences where people that I know gone through trauma of one kind or another and how it affected them, and also the psychiatric hospitals um, that uh, I'd been around, or psychiatric hospital, should I say, where I had to carry out surveys on the building and then I'd see someone that I knew in there. And it sparked off a lot of questions over a long period of time. Now, as I was producing the manuscript for the book, I found it quite intriguing that in America, mental health was a major deal anyway. And then, of course, there were policies being brought in that affected the inner cities in particular and the programs that were being launched. And then, of course, there were the incidents where some of these programs were being trialled in the education system in some of the inner cities, which people who were in the industry of psychiatry um, stood up against it and stopped some of the programs because they realised this was nothing to do with helping the children. It was actually experimenting using drugs and things like that. So then, um, gradually, I noticed that the whole industry of mental health exploded in the UK while I was getting the book published. And why was that? Well, suddenly everyone has a condition that um, is defined as an illness. So again, just taking the steps back, what is an illness? It used to be something that was biological. So if you had a cut, then you'd, you'd have a wound, right? So it need repairing. Whereas when you're talking about the mind, how can anyone define what a, an illness is? And this is where psychiatry has played a major role around the world now. So the definitions for any kind of illnesses come out of the manuals that they produce based on what? Their observation of human beings. But interestingly, there isn't a datum to say, well, if you have this particular problem and this reaction to the problem, this is how you would address it depending on which psychiatrist you talk to, determines the 
uh, application of the theory. But the reality behind all of it is that uh, people do experience trauma, trauma of the mind. The problem is the industry of psychiatry. And you may listen to this program and think, well, that's a load of nonsense because I know that um, it's a science and I get treated by someone who's a psychiatrist. Well, I'm not knocking anyone who has help in that respect. What I'm asking is that we need to really um, ask the question about whether it's authentic or not. And like I say, going into the book, you'll see its application, which will then make it even clearer that there is a huge question mark over the practice of psychiatry because it was not originally a scientific model. It, it absolutely wasn't. Uh, the terminology didn't exist in the way that we have it now, but the language of it was developed over time so that today we literally have a illness for every single part of a human emotion. So sadness isn't sadness anymore. It's depression and then other things as well. Which, are, which have the word phobia attached on the end of it. So you won't necessarily get away regardless of who you are. And if psychology is not an accurate measure for analysing and resolving the human experience, what would you say is? Well, remember the book is written from a biblical perspective. So all of these things that, that we're talking about are based on the fact that the originators do not believe that there is a creator, there is a God that's in control of everything that we see. So once you take God out of the picture, you've got to come up with an alternative. So all of these elements are the humanistic perspective on how to deal with the problems that we have. If you have an issue of the mind, you go to someone who studied the psyche, the mind. What do they use to, to do that? Their own mind. Oh, well, I'm sorry, but a lot of the people that are carrying out the treatments themselves have problems of the mind. So who determines where you should go? So for me, as a, a believer in God, he said that he would renew our minds. That's what he said. And I believe that's what he does. And I've seen how he can transform individuals by uh, dealing with the issues of the mind. And of course, the other side of that is that when we're talking about real human problems, Jesus made some real truth statements, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? He also demonstrated when he was here on earth in Israel that this isn't about mysticism. It's not about learning techniques from the East or anything like that. It is about the life-transforming power of the love of God. So for me, the process is through him, none other. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Valton. And we've come to the end of that theme. We're going to go to theme two, which is introducing the eugenic impact on society. So further in the chapter, you explore a broader brush of other materials and you then hone in on a law called the Mental Deficiencies Act 1913. And you can find what Valton has written on pages 111 to pages 116. Could you briefly explain what this act was? Well, the Mental Deficiency Act was brought in to try and deal with the issue of, as the eugenics put it, the unfit or the feeble-minded. Uh, there was a problem that they were looking at. Remember, that eugenics is about having a, a better race of human beings. 
Or what do you do when you see around you people who are experiencing trauma of the mind? Some who may even be in a place where what we would call possessed. Okay. How do you deal with all of that? And they had uh, the Royal Commissions carried out to look at the problem. And the conclusion was to pass a law that would allow powers to take such individuals and to lock them up indefinitely if necessary. Yeah, I pulled out this example because it seemed to demonstrate a combination of different materials. So we've already touched on psychology and that was one of the materials. It then also brought in law and politics. Mm. What was the importance of discussing this act to you as the writer? It demonstrated to me how once as human beings we get ideas fixed in our minds. And let me put it like this. If you don't believe in God and you immerse yourself into this philosophy, then it's always going to produce death. And here we are, human beings, looking at other human beings and saying, they're lesser than me, but they're outnumbering us because they're having more children. How can we control this whole situation? Well, the vehicle of law is one of those tools that's, that has been used over and over again, and not just in Britain, but in America and other countries as well, to try and control the issue that they think needs to be controlled by others who are in a so-called sort of better position than the individuals they're looking at. So the Mental Deficiency Act is like a, an example of what happened when the lawmakers were also influenced by people who were promoters of eugenics. And what happens when those two things come together with the philosophy that we've been talking about? It produces a law that's supposed to control but, and it incarcerated. But it, there were other things that were discussed around it as well that could have gone really, really badly, probably worse. And some of the characters in there, I won't spoil the reader's uh, opportunities to look into this, but there were characters in there that opted for things like sterilization in the UK, uh, which didn't succeed. In America, it did. So that was part and parcel of a process that went alongside incarceration. In the UK, it was psychiatric hospitals where people could be locked up for very little, really. I definitely think this chapter is very encyclopedic. Mm. So it's very much like a glossary of terms, of historical elements for each of the materials. Yeah. But it's also a very scary element to see how these materials have infiltrated our societies and how we think. There was even an article I was reading when looking at this subject that was about how even at the time, a third of doctors still believed certain attributes about black people because of the eugenic thought processes previously that was still now in yeah. our time, but people didn't realize. And I think this chapter is very much a challenging chapter, but a very important one to read, to understand the hidden tree and just the start of how it starts to permeate around. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully you can see how it's now gradually opening up so that the subject matter is getting broader because uh, it is a complex web and the, the reader should experience in this section, as you say, it's a, almost like a glossary of terms and background information. It really, really is important. The 
latter pages of, of the book then are able to go into detail and the reader will understand what is being said. But to me as well, the, the big cautionary note here is what does a Christian do who uh, believes they're following Jesus, they believe that they're applying what's in the word to their lives and, and others, they're in a position of influence where they can counsel someone who's gone through bereavement or someone who's had a, a breakup, a marriage breakup. And um, what's the default? Unfortunately, this sort of philosophy has, has woven itself into the Christian experience. So that the irony is, if someone walks through the doors of a congregation, it's highly likely if they have real problems, they're going to be introduced to someone who has learned these techniques to then apply to their problem. Well, Jesus said when he was accused of carrying out miracles through the power of Beelzebub, Satan, he says, well, can Beelzebub cast out Beelzebub? No, it can't. So why would you use an occult technique to help someone whose life is in darkness? It, it's just a contradiction completely. And we've come to the end, Valton, of this chapter. Is there anything else you would like to add as a lasting note? Probably two things. First, the first thing is we've talked about mental health and all the issues around that. There's a whole world on medication, what have you. Please don't stop taking any of this until you've sat, sat with a doctor, but it's important to question some of these elements. And as a, a believer, we've claimed for many years that God's a healer that, through Jesus. And we've prayed for people who have come through our doors, who have had trauma of the mind. We've had all sorts of scenarios where we've claimed that there's healing, only to find that there's been none. Uh, I think we really need to be honest about our relationship with Jesus in that context. And we need to question, are we applying positive thinking to a scenario? Are we embracing some of the occult techniques to try to set someone else free? Because if so, we need to go back to the drawing board and start again. Jesus only ever healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, the apostles, they taught because they themselves were set free and saved through the power of the same Holy Spirit, believing in Jesus. I think this is something we need in this 21st century. So as believers, let's start again. Have a look again. Take a look at the books on your shelf. What is the author talking about? Who is the author? The materials you've been watching on YouTube and through your phones, what sort of information are you being given? Is it in this world of mysticism where it offers you a form of spiritualism and all these different elements, or is it genuinely the teachings from God, his Torah, that's designed to set all men and women free? Thank you very much. And we have come to the end of this episode. And next time, we'll be looking into Chapter 7, The Apostles of Apostasy. A very interesting title, and it'll be a very interesting read if you get there in the book. Hopefully, we'll be able to create an equally interesting episode. And if you enjoyed what you listened to today but haven't purchased the book, the book, The Hidden Tree, is available on all major retailers such as Amazon and Waterstones. And we hope you can join us for the next episode of Beside the Author. Have a great day.